Good afternoon, and thank you so much with, for being with us on what is another very busy day, especially a busy travel day. And we are going to start where we did yesterday, taking a look at what is happening at Vancouver International Airport. And joining us with the very latest on that is Mike McNanny, VP and Chief External Affairs Officer at YVR. Mike, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you for having me. I know it's a very busy day. Uh, the last update that I saw from YVR uh, talks about some improvement with the weather conditions and work that's being done. What is the latest with what's happening at YVR with backlogs and cancelled flights and delays? So it's a very busy day today, uh, as you would expect. We are working our way through moving out uh, the backlog that has occurred from the 30 centimeters of snow that we received uh, on Tuesday. We've implemented a few things uh, over the past uh, 24 hours. For a period of time, we had uh, restrictions on uh, arrivals uh, for domestic. We have since removed that. Uh, Last night, we have initiated for a brief period of time, uh, 48 hours, uh, some restrictions on international arriving aircraft. And we've been taking all those decisions uh, as, a, as a means to open up space on the airfield so that we can then uh, get the backlog out. Uh, and of course, we are expecting uh, more winter weather coming on, on Thursday and Friday, uh, and then a great deal of rain uh, to come as of uh, Saturday. And so with the the implementation that of the, the 48 hours on the limit of arriving international flights, uh, what will that do, though, as far as for people who are still there and are hoping, are hoping to get on outbound flights to international destinations? So it will impact approximately 30 flights uh, over that 48-hour period. And obviously, uh, we, we do not take such uh, decisions such as that. Lightly, we, we understand fully the impact it has on travelers and their and their plans. Uh, and I, I know a few folks personally who were uh, impacted as a result of the decision. But what we were looking at is how do we actually uh, clear out and deal with the challenges we have as a result of the storm? And how do we overall provide the, the greatest benefit possible to get the greatest number of travelers back on their journey? So that... Uh, that, that was the decision we had to take at the time. Uh, we tried to limit it to as reasonable a time period as possible, 48 hours, uh, but we certainly did not take the decision lightly and we, and we certainly understand the impact it has on, on travellers. Uh, so what happened? Was it that more snow than expected fell in a very short amount of time or what was it that really paralyzed so many of these flights and operations at YVR? It's one of those things where you just have a whole series of issues lining up. So what occurred was we ended up with uh, approximately 30 centimeters of snow, which is not that far off the total yearly winter snowfall uh, for Vancouver. That snow, the the rate at which it was coming down, uh, and it was very heavy snow, what you were seeing is that as aircraft went through de-icing, and of course all aircraft had to go through de-icing, you were seeing a reaccumulation of snow on the aircraft and of course before they could depart uh, and take off. And of course that becomes a safety of flight issue. So aircraft are then returning back to the gates, they're returning back to the apron, they're returning back for further de-icing. And all of this created a very, very congested airfield. So all gates were fully being used and every area that we could find to safely park aircraft was also being used. And then you had a cascading impact as flights then 
begin to cancel because operators would be hitting out on, on the length of time, the maximum amount of time they could work in a day, or there was a need to refuel, or the, the aircraft is simply just going to be too far out of position to continue on. So all of the things, all of these all, all added up. Uh, it was a, it was an experience unlike uh, what we have seen uh, at YVR uh, in quite some time, and uh, obviously we're going to be doing all we can to uh, to avoid similar incidents going forward. We heard from people and we talked to people yesterday who were on planes, international flights, domestic flights, leaving YVR, who sat on those planes, they were served meals, and then only to be taken off the plane later and and being told that it wasn't taking off. We talked to other people who arrived at YVR and spent 9, 10, 11, 12 hours sitting on those airplanes. Why were the people left sitting on the planes for so long? So in the midst of the storm, uh, we, as all those aircraft were coming in and we had that tremendous congestion, we were working with the carriers, we were working to get air stairs, get buses, drivers, moving aircraft around uh, on the aprons to try and create gating space. You, you obviously, in the midst of a storm and in the, in the cold and shortly thereafter, and of course, we did not get above zero temperatures, so it's quite icy out uh, through the, the apron and, uh, area. We want to try and get people to be able to deplane via the gates uh, because that is the fastest way. When you start to deplane people via air stairs, and particularly in inclement weather, it is a very, very, very slow process for each aircraft that is out there. So what happened, it's very meticulous and time-demanding work that you go through, the sheer number of aircraft that we were dealing with then led to the holds that you saw. And I absolutely we absolutely feel for the passengers uh, that were on those flights. Uh, and that is why we, as I was saying a few moments ago, that's why we've taken the other decisions that we have taken in the past 24 hours uh, in terms of in, uh, some restrictions on international and what we had in place for domestic so that we can uh, clear out that backlog uh, and avoid uh, uh, further repeats. Uh, so looking at the departures today, there are a lot of delays. There are still some cancellations. I know there are still people at the airport who have been there since Monday. What is your advice to people who are still traveling and still hoping to get to their destination for Christmas? So first and foremost, please uh, engage with your carrier to see what the latest information is. I know I have seen uh, statements by various carriers that have asked uh, people to not go to the airport to try and change their ticket, uh, but to do it online. Uh, certainly our overall request of, of folks is that if you do not have a, a need to go to the airport, please refrain from doing so as we work through all of this congestion. Uh, what we are hoping to do and, and the events that we have seen over the past 24 hours and the plans that we are putting into place, what we are working to do is get back to the, the, the inbound and outbound flow of aircraft that we need to get to so that the overall system can get reset uh, and then uh, people will be able to to continue their travel plans and or the carriers will be able to put on uh, more service and we'll be able to get people to where they need to go. And is is it embarrassing for Vancouver International Airport, an airport of this size, to have this happen? Or like you said, was this an unprecedented storm and there was no way to avoid it? It is a, a very frustrating uh, experience, obviously, for the travelers. It's a frustrating experience for employees. They, we take a lot of pride in the organization and the brand uh, and what we have built up over the years. At, its, at, at the core, though, of all of this is that we have to remember that safety 
and, and I know you, you, we hear this and people talk about it, but we have to remember that this is all about safety. Ultimately, this is about safety of operations. And when you have that many aircraft uh, in an air, in, on, on the airfield and you have aircraft turning back and you have wide body and narrow body, large and small aircraft, it is a safety of operations issue. Uh, absolutely, uh, we understand the impact it has had. Uh, it is a disheartening impact for us all. But at the end of the day, we also measure operations by were we able to continue to operate to operate safely. So uh, you, you look at it through a variety of lenses. All right, Mike McNanny, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. As of yesterday, Canada is banning the manufacture and import for sale of many single-use plastics. This is all part of the effort to achieve zero plastic waste by 2030. This is coming from the Environment and Climate Change Canada Ministry. We're talking about things like cutlery, food service ware, stir sticks, straws, and the list goes on and on. There are certain things that are not on that list, though, and joining us to talk more about this is Bob Masterson, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Chemical Industry Association of Canada. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure being with you. So this ban is now in place in Canada. It came into effect on Tuesday, Canada banning the manufacturing and import for sale of single-use plastics. And we can go into some of the details of this, but like we know, it's checkout bags, cutlery, food service ware, stir sticks, straws, and I I know that your industry and your organization has expressed some concerns about this in the past. What are your concerns about this ban? (laughs) Well, there's several. I think the the big concern is it's quite arbitrary, right? I mean, you look at British Columbia, for instance, uh, one of the items on that list is the plastic takeout container, and I'm sure those are widely, widely used in Vancouver. Well, everybody that takes them home, they can either reuse them if they wish, or if they don't want, they do go in the blue box into the recycling system, and they can and are recycled. So a lot of frustration that there's things on that list that can be and are being recycled. Uh, The second frustration, of course, is, uh, well, what are we replacing these with? So we're taking these containers that are very cost-effective, very effective for the customer, they serve their purpose and can be recycled. We're taking them out of the market, and what are you going to replace them with? probably aluminum foil containers that are going to end up in the landfill anyway. So very frustrating that there's not clear criteria what goes on the list and how you're going to assess the ultimate benefit, if any, of the alternatives that will replace these products. And when you talk about the benefit, that's certainly part of the conversation that I've been seeing different, well, different points of view, I suppose, because on the one hand, you'll have people that are in favor of this ban saying this is great because it keeps all of this plastic out of the landfill. Uh, Some will even go as far to say it keeps all of this plastic out of the ocean. Uh, As we know in in Canada, in, in B.C., for the most part, plastic is only going into the ocean if you are throwing it into the ocean. It's not as though we throw our plastic into the ocean. Do we know exactly what this is going to do by banning these these products, these single-use plastics? What are we actually keeping out of the landfill? Uh, very difficult to say. What I would say is we know, uh, we know a few things. We know that um, roughly $8 billion worth of plastics go into landfill every year across Canada. We should and can recycle those, and British Columbia is really showing the leadership on that. When we look at the, you know, there are individual companies that produce these specific products that are going to be harmed. But when you look at the total flow of plastics in the Canadian economy, it's probably less than 1% roughly 
of the total flow of plastics that are being addressed here. And then again, you think that many of these products are already recyclable. Even if you look at the plastic bag, if you're in the city of Toronto, those go into your blue box. They can and they are recycled. So you're going to be replacing stuff that is being recycled. Uh, some of it, you may stop some things going to landfill, but again, I'll come back to the aluminum takeout container container with the lined plastic, uh, paper lid. It's going into landfill. It's not going to get recycled. So is the volume to landfill going to change? Pretty difficult to say. Is the idea then or is the hope then that if, if we're taking those plastic containers out of circulation and uh, I happened, I, I didn't realize that I was going to be talking about my lunch today, yeah. but my lunch was packed in one of those containers that I, I got sure. from a Mexican restaurant some time ago. Uh, if we're taking it out of the landfill, is the is the idea then that we're going to be able to switch to uh, the the types of containers that you put right into the green bin that goes into the the compost? Well, that's not really a solution either, because like recycling, I mean that that is a potential solution, and things can happen. But we, and that's another thing that happens with many many of the plastics. You will see them being substituted with so-called compostable products. Many of them are, are a form of plastic as well. But just like recycling, you have to have the institutional facilities to compost these materials. You don't just put it in your garden and it degrades in the fertilizer. It has to be collected, has to be processed, and we have very, very few industrial-scale uh, composting facilities across Canada. You know, if again, just back to this plastic container, because it's the easiest example. So one of the things that's on the federal list is so-called black plastics. They're listed as difficult to recycle. Again, they're not. You have to have modern sorting equipment, and British Columbia has that. So you can collect these, you can scale them, but it's all because of the changes you've made to your recycling system in that province. When we look at Ontario, for instance, we have 256 different and competing municipal recycling systems paid for by municipal taxpayers. So if you say to those municipalities, hey, we need another $60 million for an optical scanner so we can sort black plastic, they're going to say get in line behind the opioid crisis, homelessness, COVID, and everything else. In other words, it won't happen. What you've done in British Columbia is you've taken the recycling system out of the responsibility of municipal taxpayers, and it's now paid for by the companies that put the packaging into the economy. They pay a tax. They pay it to themselves, basically, and they operate the province's recycling system on a harmonized basis across the whole province. That's a change that we're seeing coming to the other jurisdictions, Alberta, Quebec, and Ontario. So another key frustration is we're in the middle of transforming our recycling systems to work the way BC's does, and we're taking products out that that can and, and are able to be recycled. So lots of frustrations in these areas. One of the other uh, descriptions I thought that was uh, a bit uh, or interesting, or I was curious as to how people have come up with this and how we even know, is that so under this ban that is now in effect as of Tuesday, we're talking about plastic cutlery, forks, knives, spoons, uh, anything that uh, that changes their physical properties after being run through a dishwasher 100 times. So that's banned, but it's not banned if it can withstand being run through a dishwasher a hundred times and it's reusable. Who's looking at right. the different types of cutlery and deciding which is which? Well, that's a good question, and <laughs> that isn't entirely clear. But we, I'm going to come back again. It's so simple, it's so wrong. But that black plastic container, many of those, uh, we have manufacturers that make those and have been shown to be certified 
by external third-party laboratories to withstand uh, washing 100 times. But uh, it's not all the items on the list that that get that, uh, let's call it exemption, if you can prove that you've got significant reuse. And the plastic container, again, is one of those. So uh, back to the point of being frustrated that it's all very arbitrary. Yep, plastic straw, 100 uses, 100 times in a dishwasher. You can still sell that. You can manufacture that. Uh, black plastic that could also be re- rewashed 100 times, you can't sell that. You can't manufacture it. Very arbitrary. And and as far as the other uh, things that are exempt as well, uh, talking about people will, will think about, well, you go to the grocery store, you can't have a plastic bag to take your groceries home anymore, but you can take 10 plastic bags to put produce in to then put in a bag. Uh, you can buy peanut butter in plastic. You can have the plastic right. trays for, for meat, for fish, things like that. Uh, so, Correct. Uh, so it just seems when you look at all of the exemptions and you look at what the goal of this is, if the goal is to keep things out of the land Phil, like you said, doesn't it make more sense that we recycle what we're already using rather than bringing in these these different rules? Uh, we would agree, and again, British Columbia has done a great job of showing how that works. Just in, in the first four or five years of the new recycling program in BC, you, you've taken plastics recycling up to 55%. Remember, the average across the country is only 10%. So you've got something special happening there, and uh, the rest of the country needs to catch up really quickly. The question people need to ask themselves, though, and again, we've got, we, we, we're having the wrong conversation about plastic. There's this view that it's negative and it's bad. But, you know, we have to ask that question, well, why is it in our grocery store, right? Why do I have it when I go get my grapes? Why are they in a plastic net now? Well, it's simple. If you touch those plastic grapes with your hands, the oils on your hands are going to allow those grapes to start to decompose very, very quickly. And the store has a lot of waste. Put it in a net, you get to choose what net you want, but you don't get to handle that material. You come to your peanut butter jar or your mayonnaise jar, why is that plastic not not glass? Well, with all the emphasis on climate change and energy efficiency, the glass container is so much heavier and so much more costly to move around than the plastic. So you have all these answers to the questions, but you have very very few people asking the question, well, why is this plastic there? Even the electric vehicle, right? significantly more plastic and electric vehicle. Why? Because we want to lightweight it. We're never going back to the day when we have steel bumpers and glass headlights. Those are long gone. No one would want that. So these are very important, valuable materials. And, you know, again, while the the ban is arbitrary and symbolic on these six things, it's creating a conversation around plastics. It's not very helpful for society, given its importance to to everything uh, that, that we touch. It's got some form of plastic in it. Well, we so will... the answer, again, is back to recycling. Right. All right. Well, we're going to continue having that conversation for sure. But, Bob, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so sure. much for making the time for us. Thank you very much. Have a happy holiday. I imagine this thought went through many minds. People at YVR and other airports looking up, seeing their flights cancelled or delayed to the point they're not going to get to their destination or they're fearful they won't get to their destination. How many people thought of doing what we see in so many Christmas movies? Running to the car rental desk and seeing if you can get a car and just hitting the road. Well, that is what my next guest did. He didn't have to do it from Vancouver. He got out of Vancouver just in time 
time just before the big snowstorm hit. But he didn't get all the way home to Newfoundland. And I caught up with David Bradbury to find out a little bit more about how his trip home is going. To say he's determined is an understatement. But I caught up with him on the road for the very latest. No problem. Well, we've been talking so much about the chaos at Vancouver International Airport and people's travel plans being thrown into, well, into disarray. Uh, Tell us what happened to you, because you live in Newfoundland, but you work in B.C., so how was your trip home? Well, uh, I was lucky to get out of B.C. because it was Sunday. We were two and a half hours uh, de-icing, but I had a three and a half hour layover in Toronto, so I figured I was fine. And uh, when we landed in Toronto... Uh, I went right to Google and checked on my flight status for from Toronto to Newfoundland, and it came up cancelled. So uh, as soon as we went in, talked to an agent, and they said we'd hear something by email in four hours, and they gave us a hotel voucher. Um, we never heard nothing that night. So I got uh, up 6.30 and got the bus back to the airport, uh, went right to the manager, and he said, unless they put in an emergency flight for you, he said, uh, you're not getting home for Christmas or Boxing Day and there's nothing we can do. And I said, emergency flight is not going to happen, is it? And he gave me his look. So I said, okay, I'm renting a car. And I went right to the rental company, Avis, and um, got a rental car and started driving. <laughs> How long is that drive? It's 3,000 kilometers, so it's a 28-hour drive. Wow. And did you make many stops? I stopped in uh, New Brunswick and stayed at the hotel for the night. And then the next day I made it to the ferry crossing, uh, which was overnight ferry crossing, and now I'm on the road today and still got two and a half hours drive left. Wow. Well, that's it's pretty amazing to see that you were able to do that. What went through your mind? Like you said, you, you knew there wasn't going to be an emergency flight. Did you at all ever entertain the idea that you wouldn't get home for Christmas? No, not at all. I, was, I said it the night before when they told me the flight was cancelled. I'm renting a car tomorrow. And what was their response when you said that? Uh, some people said they were going to join me, and the next day they put their fate into the uh, uh, West Jet, and uh, I guess now they're kicking themselves for not coming with me. <laughs> I guess so, although the Corolla might have been a bit crowded if that had been the case. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and so just, yes, it would have. <laughs> but still, still would have been okay. Uh, so just going back a bit, yep. so again, you work in BC, so no problems except for the fact that it was the, the de-icing and a bit of a delay leaving Vancouver. It sounds like that was kind of what started that domino effect. Yes, exactly. And I mean, uh, uh, like I said, lucky to get out of Vancouver because the storm was just starting and they, they're not used to snow like they're getting. No, uh, not at all. We've certainly uh, seen that here. You're right. Uh, If you'd been a day later, uh, you would likely, uh, well, you might be driving right across the country, but I don't know if you would have made it in time. No, uh, well, but it probably took six six days, so yeah, (laughs) it would have been difficult. But I probably would have drove to the nearest airport that I might have been able to get a flight. I would have checked airlines right across Canada. Yeah, and I know other people, too, have had their flights cancelled. They're going to Seattle. Like you said, they're going to other airports as well. So it's kind of that whole uh, where there's a will, there's a way, isn't it? Absolutely. I'll be home for Christmas. Rings true. And and tell us a little bit. I know, obviously, people want to be home and with their families or for whatever reason. Why was it so important for you to be home and to be back in Newfoundland for the holidays? Well, I've been gone since May 15th. I was home for a week in August to see my family. Um, my new, uh, grandson was born in September, so I haven't met him yet. And I haven't seen my wife since September, so I just want to ha- have her in my arms and my grandchild. 
Oh, that's so it's so nice. I would imagine that's more incentive, too, when uh, you said you were going to find a way to get back no matter what. No, uh, no matter what. Did you have yep. any problem at all getting a rental car? Was there a run on rental cars? Anybody else that had maybe a similar idea to you? Um, no, uh, I checked the first four rental companies, never had one that I could drop off in Newfoundland. And the last rental company I checked was Avis. And they said, yes, we do have a car, car that you can drop off. And I actually got a call from the Avis uh, manager in Toronto and he heard my story on the news and they gave me 50% off my rental. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was very nice. He said to take some of the stress away from Christmas and the travel. Oh, that's so nice. Um, you don't have to tell me yeah. the full amount, but I'm curious to do that such a, such a last minute thing and to have a three thousand. Did you say three thousand kilometer uh, drive? Is it ex- quite expensive to do what you're doing? Uh, over twenty five hundred. With time, you could take in hotel, gas, meals, uh, ferry ride, and car rental. Yeah. But I guess the alternative is you would have spent the holidays by yourself, wouldn't have seen your family, and probably wouldn't have had a very good Christmas. I would have spent $10,000 to get home to <laughs> Any price to get back and to be there for the holidays? Absolutely. I would have ran my credit cards to the hilt if I had to. <laughs> what have the roads been like as you've been on them and getting back home? I've been very lucky. The roads have been dry and the weather's been great. And how long will you get them with your family before? Are you coming back to continue working in BC? Yes, I'm missing I'm missing out on three days now. I've got to go back to January the 3rd, so I missed out on three days of my holidays. Well, hopefully the but weather. It could be worse. Yeah. It could be worse. I could be stuck in Toronto. <laughs> yes, very, very good point. Well, hopefully the weather uh, will cooperate and your trip home will be a little, not home, sorry, your trip back to BC to work will be a little smoother. Yes, please, God. <laughs> You're missing a lot of snow here. There's more snow and ice than we've seen uh, in many, many years. So at least you've got that. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm lucky to get home. And a lot of people that uh, book flights for Christmas Eve and Boxing Day, uh, the weather is not looking very good. They might, still might not make it on those days. Does your family know what you've done or are you surprising them? No, they know. They're, they're all worried. My, my wife's been crying for two days, worried to death about me. Oh, no. And because I never got home. Yeah. Is, yeah. She, is she more worried, worried that you, you more worried or more upset that you didn't make the flight, or is she worried that you're taking on this big drive in the winter? She's worried that I'm taking on this big drive in the winter, but now she's very excited because I'm only two hours away. All right. Well, I appreciate so much that you took the time to talk to us. I do love stories like this that are that are taking a horrible situation and making the best of it. Thank you so much, David, for talking to us today and have a very Merry Christmas. Thank you and you too. Have a very Merry Christmas. Well, we are going to talk about somebody who has just been named. We're going to talk to somebody who's just been named the 2022 Innovator of the Year. And this is at the Science Fair Foundation of BC's Youth Innovation Showcase. And joining us to talk about this is Liam Pope-Lau. Liam, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is a pretty cool story, and uh, I read about you uh, getting this title, and it has to do with a self-heating life jacket. So can you take us back? How did you get the idea, and how did that ball get, ball get rolling as far as developing a self-heating life jacket vest? 
two years ago, in the summer before I was in grade six, I was learning how to sail when my boat capsized and I fell into the ocean. Even though it was summer, it was actually really cold. And when I got home, I looked up hypothermia and saw how many people die of hypothermia each year and how preventable it is. And from there, I mean, a lot of people would, would probably have that uh, scenario, could have that happen and would think, okay, well, I'm going to work really hard to not fall out of my boat or to not fall in the ocean. But you took it a step further. Yes. Um, so when the science fair came out at school, I asked my friend Fraser if he would be interested in doing a project on a self-heating life jacket to prevent hypothermia. And he liked the idea. So we started working and thinking about what it would be needed to do and different ways to create heat. And how how long did that take you to kind of come up with that? It took around five months, I would say. And since we also really knew that we'd need something that would work as soon as it was immersed in water, because cold shock sets in in less than a minute, hypothermia in less than an hour, and someone could also be unconscious in the water. So it needs to activate immediately on its own. And so at that point then, so you, you understand or you know what you, what you need to do or what you want to create. So that's, I think, where I think a lot of people would also think, hmm, I don't really know how to make that happen. But you and Fraser, you teamed up and, and was it a lot of trial and error or did you kind of know what you wanted to be researching and looking at? Um, yeah, it was actually a lot of trial and error. We tested over a dozen designs, and in one of our ocean tests, we actually used way too much calcium chloride, and the life jackets were too hot. We had to scramble to get the life jackets off as fast as we could. Oh. It was one way to learn quickly how hot chemical reactions can get, even in cold water. So we had to modify the design of the life heat pouch to ensure it wouldn't get too hot. Uh, you mentioned calcium chloride. So what exactly, what do we use calcium chloride for? Or how did you know that that would be the material that would be able to, to respond to cold and, and could potentially work for a self-heating life jacket vest? Well, calcium chloride is used in ice melt on the roads and even in electrolyte in sports drinks, such as Powerade or Gatorade, and you'll find it in most waters too. So you knew the chemical that you wanted to use, but as you just said, you had to work a little bit on the amount and what was going to be the right amount. And uh, I'm glad that you were able to get the life jacket off when it was getting uh, too hot. From that point, uh, kind of how long did it take before you had played around with it or experimented enough and figured out what you needed to do? I'd say it took around 10 months to kind of really get our prototype right. And so we really kind of like to design the selfing life jacket, we really experimented with different proportions of calcium chloride and integrated a couple textile technologies to balance the heat flow, such as neoprene, microfiber, tightly polyester, and ripstart tactile. And uh, the life heat pouch is actually attached to the life jacket and it's filled with calcium chloride, which generates heat through an exothermic reaction when immersed in water. Oh, interesting. So could it be used in a sense then somebody could could take your design and what you've done and add it to their own life jacket? Or is it one full unit that you've put together? Uh, It is compatible with almost any type of life jacket that we've tested so far. 
Interesting. So I, I understand then that you and Fraser started taking this invention to science fairs. What was that like? Uh, we entered it in the regional science fair as as an experimental project in 2021, just uh, kind of like an innovation in 2022. Uh, the first time it was really it was really good since that was kind of like our proof of concept and so that we actually managed to get and kind of like really learn about how the process and how to generate the heat. And then the second one, we actually started to integrate the textiles and create the pouch, which really allowed us to further our project. What kind of a response did you get from people when they saw what you had created? Oh, we've received so much positive feedback and support, uh, including from Anne Mako Sinsky, who invented the hollow flashlight. And so many of my teachers actually have come up to me, and one of them actually participated in hypothermia research in the 70s at the University of Victoria. We've had um, um, Mustang Survival and BC Ferries, who have uh, gave us some feedback and support, which was so helpful. And uh, we'd just like really like to thank them for that. Oh, for sure, for sure. And this this seems like such a, a great thing that could be used so much. What would you kind of envision if this was if your invention was made on a larger scale? Um, I, I guess for anybody that's out on the water on those cold waters where you have the potential of falling in. Yes, I'd say just kind of like for anybody who's really like working in a kind of like ocean or lake environment, paddling, swim, like not swimming, but like on a boat, cruise ships, airplanes, like large boat sailing. Yeah. And I understand then uh, in getting that title of uh, innovator of the year, uh, you also uh, both you were earned or got the $5,000 award that's uh, from the BC Science Fair Foundation. What did it feel like getting the $5,000 reward or, or sorry, award for that? It was amazing. We were, it was just kind of like, you know, when you just like realize that you actually like won it and we were so surprised and it was, it was, it was, it was really amazing. And did you split the money or what did you do with the money? Uh, we split the money and we were deciding we're going to put most of it towards the project since that's where it kind of meant to go. <laughs> Had you invented other things before this? Uh, yes. Um, my first science fair project, um, it was actually on microplastics in, on some of the beaches around BC and worldwide. My second one was on uh, using water and certain metals to kind of create um, electricity to power a light. So I've done a little bit of innovation. <laughs> it sounds like it. And so are you going to keep working then on this product or do you have other inventions in mind? We're going to really try and um, keep going with this project and start to look at like contacting MIT and looking at uh, like textile technologies and starting to like contact hypothermia researchers to like researchers to really improve our, our kind of like project to make it the best we can possibly make it. And it must feel good to get recognition, not that it all comes down to the money or even the title, but it must feel good to put work into this, to have an idea and to kind of see it through and then see it getting the recognition and you and you and, and Fraser getting the recognition for doing that. Yeah, it was, it's just so amazing. But really, at the end of the day, we just really hope that it can actually save a life.
Yeah, and that's a great point in that that's that's the whole kind of the the inspiration for this and the wanting to do this. Imagine if, if this does kind of become the norm and you and Fraser are responsible for, for exactly that, for saving someone's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would, it's just like that's kind of like the ultimate thing. And yeah, thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, for talking about this today. What a great thing that uh, you and uh, Fraser have done. And uh, congratulations on getting the $5,000 and the title. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And it's just been really like a pleasure speaking with you. 911. 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh, my God. The ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.